but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 203. So much has happened in tennis since we were last on air. It was a challenge to put together an agenda that was coherent and timely because the moment you put something on paper, something else happens. Tennis has been moving at a frantic pace as everything's started to come back to life. Yeah, we've had our first official events since March, starting in Italy and then in Prague and Kentucky. The ATP hasn't resumed yet, but they will tomorrow in Cincinnati. Well, they have been playing qualifying in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Before we get into what's been happening, just a quick note to thank you all for reaching out uh, regarding our last episode. It was, to be cliche, a labor of love, and we are glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, it was laborious. But those are fun to do. I continue to find gaps in my historical tennis knowledge, and it's, it's really cool to kind of be a lifelong learner about the history of tennis. Where to start? You wanted to start with pronunciations. Oh yes, that's right. The WTA has asked players to send in audio clips of them pronouncing their own names, which the ATP has had on its website for a little while. This is where we get a bit sanctimonious about it. We have always tried to pronounce names properly. We have often failed. We will continue to try, and it's easier now because we have all the tools at our disposal. Mm -hmm. It's in the trying. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and while I don't expect us to get it 100% right all the time, we did spend about 15 minutes today going through player pronunciations that we'd be talking about on this show. Now watch us fail. <laughs> I know. You're really setting us up to, to be mocked here. But the point is that commentators very often do not try at all. No. You know, it's not that they can't make those sounds with their mouths. It's that there's not even really an attempt to, to put emphasis on the right syllable or any of that. Like, listen, after this was announced and folks started to be aware of these WTA pronunciations being available... There was a British commentator, I don't know who it was, who went with Muchavo. <laughs> so, you know, there's being wrong and then there's making an, making an attempt to be in the general vicinity of being correct. Mm. It does get complicated because some players have submitted the anglicized version of their name, which is fine. Just call people what they want to be called, mm -hmm. I guess is the lesson, right? Some of the Chinese players have given their pronunciation with their first name yeah, first. Like their family name second. Yeah, which, which we were taught that the surname comes first. I don't know what to say with that. I mean, that is genuinely, con genuinely confusing for me. But we will try as best as we can to go with what they've given us. I guess, so we can start in Palermo, which was the first tournament back. Fiona Farrell was doing the business at that tournament. Right. Fiona, if you are not familiar with her, is a 23-year-old, the French number three. She does have an Italian name, but she is French. She's 
been basically winning nonstop over the summer. The French Federation organized these two tournaments in which she went 10-0 and in <laughs> beating all of her compatriots who showed up. At Palermo, we saw kind of a resurgent Sarah Arani win a few matches. Farrow beat her in the quarterfinals. She beat Georgie in the semifinals. And Annette Contivate in the final. So, for example, you just said that Fiona Farrow beat Camila Giorgi in Palermo, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe Camila has a different pronunciation that we haven't thought of. Or maybe she wants to be called a certain way. So we went and we looked it up. And one of the cool bits about this this thing on the WTA website is that these things are being recorded in so many different ways. You get a lot of humor from it sometimes. It's not just a player in their room recording and then sending the file. Sometimes there's interaction. It's not uniformly done. And so you'd never quite know what you're going to expect. So here's what Ms. Camilla has to say. It's for a media guide. So the uh, broadcasters, when they want to know how to correctly say your name. Oh, okay. Perfecto. Camilla Giorgi. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Oh, okay. Perfecto. <laughs> Camilla Giorgi. Did you think she wanted to be named like Pamela or something? I don't know. I'm just <laughs> curious. It's It doesn't have to be a laborious exercise, mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. Anyway, Fiona Farrow was the first title winner of the resumed WTA season at Palermo. There was no pronunciation guide for that, but I know that's how it's... Yeah, you spent a semester in Italy, you learned Italian, we get it. And, get he, and it. he has the nerve to ask me if I said Georgie correctly. I didn't overprint really, I didn't do you it didn't in the... really do the Italian Georgie. I didn't, but there is like a level of uh, pretension to for like English people to overpronounce things, you know what I mean? But you do this all the time with Italian words, mm. is what I'm saying. Oh, wow. Thanks. Uh, moving on to Prague, pretty much an all-European field versus Lexington, Kentucky, which was a largely North American field. Not entirely, of course. Simona Halep comes back, has a scratchy start, which is to be expected of anyone in these circumstances, gets through a few difficult matches, and then kind of, I would say, cruises to the title later on, beating Elisa... Mertens. I'm s the, I can't say it how Dutch people say it, but I was trying to approximate what she said on the website. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Elisa Mertens was the runner-up in Prague to Simona Halep. Simona, right after the title, was asked, are you coming to the U.S. Open or not? And she said, you know, give me, give me some time. Give me a day. I'll tell you tomorrow. Can you please let me celebrate this title win? And t the following day, she said, you know, I've, this is a tough decision, but I've decided not to come. And I, I think she probably just wanted a minute to cut, to enjoy that victory and not have her withdrawal from the U.S. Open dominate the news cycle, right? Or maybe she just wanted a minute. <laughs> sure, sure. I'm sure she'd been asked about it a lot in uh, the lead up to that tournament, through the opening rounds of that tournament. But she had expressed some apprehension a while ago about coming to the U.S. Open she famously pulled out of the Rio Olympics because of fears of Zika. This is not a surprise at all that she's decided not to come to New York. And especially with all of these top 10 players pulling out now, it's it's almost a non-story. So over to Lexington, Kentucky, the inaugural version of this event at the Top Seed Tennis Club attracted an incredible field that I do not think they expected to have. <laughs> we had... 
you know, Serena and Venus Williams, Coco Goff, Sloan Stevens, all of these big names and the title winner and the finalists were simply not who was projected to make it, right? Jennifer Brady wins the title and Jill Teichman is the runner-up. Right, but if you've been paying attention to the little tennis that we've had in 2020 and even 2019 where Jill won two tournaments, Mm -hmm. these are two players who could easily have been earmarked as favorites to start the tournament as much as one can call somebody a favorite coming out of quarantine. Mm-hmm. Right, That was a big X factor where you don't know how folks are going to re-emerge. It's what we talked about with Ons Jabur, where she had such a great start to the season and her momentum was interrupted. How would she re-emerge? As much as this is a, a disastrous wrench in people's lives, period, this is also a wrench in tennis players' lives, you know, about right. as far right. as the trajectory of their careers. It's unpredictable to begin with, let alone having to factor in an unplanned five-month break due to a global pandemic. Yeah, of interest to me throughout these these past five, six months has been, okay, so as tennis players, your your job is to maintain a level of conditioning. Like, your body is, is your job, right? So that's one challenge throughout these few months. The other challenge is the psychological and emotional challenges that all of us are going through. In, in a really difficult time mentally, how do you sort of keep focused, keep motivated to work, manage the emotional roller coaster that this has been really for for all of us in different ways? And, you know, someone like Jennifer Brady clearly handled it well. She came back after having a great run before March and pretty much dominated all of her opponents. Let me take a moment here to speak on our own struggles with producing the podcast in these times. You know, in the first few months, honestly, it wasn't that hard. But the last... the last, <laughs> We were also motivated to, like, we need to produce through this, this downtime because, A, people are bored. B, we are bored. Um, and this is a great time to do some of the work that we've been wanting to that have been, that's been kind of in the pipeline, right? Mm-hmm. But it's been a struggle. The last two months. Yes. And it was also a struggle to get back into tennis once the tournaments actually started. It's still a struggle. That's not past tense for me. Personally, I began working again. Yeah. And that threw a wrench into like trying to keep up with what was going on in tennis while I was adjusting to that new, new normal again. And so I, I can't imagine what it's like to have to reintegrate yourself as an actual tennis professional. If you are emotionally and intellectually if you were at all perturbed yeah. by this worldwide pandemic some <laughs> if you were bothered <laughs> in the least bit emotionally or in- intellectually by this whole thing some tennis players didn't seem to notice that it happened i mean for some people it it might have been fine some people played more frequently than they do during the normal tour <laughs> at any rate we are in kentucky we are not a couple the tour mm-hmm. the tour the WTA tour is in Kentucky unexpectedly this tournament came about in two shakes of a duck's tail seemingly yeah and Reem Abilil put out this story toward the end of that tournament that was quite enlightening as to how the tournament came to be and we learned quite a bit that we did not know Donya Schuheiber the 
owner of the Top Seed Tennis Club in Lexington, Kentucky, this is per Reem Abilil's reporting, said that she received a call in early July offering them the opportunity to host a WTA event at their site and that she jumped at the chance to help bring tennis back from its five-month coronavirus enforced hiatus. Think about the timing of that. <laughs> this happened in early July and this tournament went off without a hitch a month later. Mm-hmm. With, I, I can't imagine getting all those safety protocols together in addition to you know the normal things that go into hosting professional tennis. Shuhaiber is a Palestinian Egyptian from Dubai, went to college undergrad in Kentucky, went to do her master's in Kentucky, and has lived in the same house in Kentucky since, I believe, 1997. Y'all, like, this is, this is journalism. This is, to me, what great reporting is. Reem found a story that we didn't know existed that puts a, a personal and international spin on this tennis tournament that we were all watching. We didn't know all these little details, so kudos to her. I absolutely love reporting like this because it takes work to get these kind of stories. She's also responsible for having Black Lives Matter stenciled onto the signage at that tournament because that was something that took folks a little bit by surprise. Mm -hmm. Would you expect that the top seed tennis open would be helmed by an Arab woman in Kentucky? Right. Of the decision to feature Black Lives Matter, she said, I'm very proud of it, and it was a top-seed tennis club decision, and I think it speaks for itself. Enough said. So getting back to the tennis, the big story before the tournament started was this little section where Serena, Venus, Azarenka, and Bernarda Pera fell. So Serena opened against Pera, Venus opened against Vika, and the winner would have to play Serena. Venus and Vika... That was a revelatory match <laughs> for for this little part of the season because Venus hasn't played like this since her run to the quarterfinals last year in Cincinnati, a mm-hmm. year ago. We saw snippets of her new game, her refashioned game at 40 years old, like doing the work. Hey, I've got I've got four months off. Let me change my game. Let me change my forehand. <laughs> Let me change my serve. Let me wheel and come again. What? Right. Like, she played her first match in 1994 on a professional level. I want to be that kind of person who is willing to humble him or herself and learn new things when, you, when you've done everything in your career. I'm old enough now to be an obstinate mule. And I often am. Wow. And I know firsthand how difficult it is to do things differently when you've been doing it a certain way for a while. <laughs> so this is something that resonates with me that I that I marvel at. We saw glimpses of Venus's new game at World Team Tennis. Didn't go quite so well for her at that tournament. I think she had one singles win over Sloane Stevens, which no disrespect to Miss Stevens, didn't really allow for any extrapolations as to the actual mm-hmm. state of her form, because... That was very diplomatic, because what I was going to say is no disrespect, but who hasn't? That is rude and out of pocket. <laughs> I would not go there on air. <laughs> but Venus shows up in Kentucky, and this matchup is good for her, even in the best of times for both players. Venus likes mm-hmm. consistent pace from the baseline, not too much from Vika to, to blow her off the court. 
right? But, you know, the, the st- tennis is about matchups. We know this. Yeah. And this is not an opponent that, that troubles Venus too much historically. Mm-hmm. I think Venus was like 6-2 and two or 7-2 and two going it, into this match. It was a favorable yeah. win-loss head-to-head. That said, Venus is serving aces like we haven't seen in forever. I think one of the telltale signs of when Venus is playing well or serving well is when she's able to hit the ace down the tee. She hasn't been doing that consistently in a while, but that is back in her game. She has abbreviated the service motion. She has abbreviated the backswing on her forehand. Kudos to Tamani Carroll, who did a side-by-side comparison on Twitter to show that her forehand technique is much more akin to an ATP player now Mm. and credits that to the tutelage of Eric Heitman, who is her new coach. I mean, over... It's been a while now, but still, they're clearly working through some new things still. And so with Serena beating Para and Venus beating Vika, we get, again, an early round matchup of the Williams sisters. Before we get that, do you want to say anything about the state of Vika's game? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know, like, what really there is to say. Like, it's really unfortunate because I feel like at this stage, she's just lacking weapons. Isn't- and I'm trying to think, like, at her peak... What were her weapons? And I think it was just consistent, extremely aggressive returning, pounding from the baseline, demoralizing. She didn't miss. That helped. Right. And she was so powerful. But there wasn't like one kill shot that was like the best in women's tennis, right? But with the sum of her parts, she passed the eye test. She was a great, great player, like a Hall of Famer. That's That can't be disputed. Like... But at this point, I don't know what Vika does that can can beat those top players. She's missing too often and in critical moments. That's, that's one. The consistency isn't there. And there doesn't seem to be any teeth to her game mm. anymore. She just doesn't have the weapons currently, not to say that it cannot change. Perhaps confidence has a lot to do with that, but this is unfortunately a shadow of the Vika that we've known. Like, when you think back to, say, her Australian Open wins, her wins over Serena Williams in 2012, 2013, those U.S. Open finals, that was a Vika whose return was unmatched in the sport and whose competitive fire was only matched by Serena. Vika was an absolute joy to watch when she played someone at that level. You see how easy it was to not refer to a woman as a beast just there? Right, right. Hmm. Before we get to that Williams match, I want to mention that on that second day in Kentucky, we had a lineup that saw Serena open the day's action on their center court, followed by Coco Goff, then Venus Williams, and then finishing with Sloan Stevens, back to back to back to back. What a moment that was. Mm-hmm. It was easy, I think, to take that for granted in the moment, to not really realize the gravity of what we were watching. Multiple generations of black women in tennis, the fruition of the struggles of so many who came before. At this low-key, small event in Kentucky, we get to witness this. Serena, Venus, and the legacy. Serena, Venus, they themselves being the legacy Mm -hmm. of Althea Gibson, of Zena Garrison, of Leslie Allen, of Ora Washington. Of Katrina Adams. And I'm sure there's so many more that we continue to learn about. A lot of folks would have just learned about Bob Ryland in the last couple weeks. We'll get to him at the end of the episode. 
but I feel that it's been such a disservice to the history of tennis that we have not learned the full extent of its black history, as evidenced by the fact that we still, we're still learning about it. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to fill it in, but these names should be on the tip of our tongue more often, I think. So back to Lexington, I don't want to make this an all Serena and Venus episode, but we should mention Serena's return, the state of her game. I fully expected Venus to win that match. I didn't fully expect it because <laughs> I'm always on guard well, right. for, you know, all that mess. Mm-hmm. I wasn't certain, but I thought that Venus would probably win it. She won the first set, and while I don't think Serena was in better form per se, things started to click, right? The aces started to fall. She managed to scrape out of some difficult situations, especially in the third set. Right. You got the sense that even though Venus was probably playing the better match overall, by the start of that third set, you got the sense that, well, Serena's probably going to win this thing. And then Venus goes up Mm 4-2 and then loses the next four games. Right. Both sisters have come out of this hiatus in better form than I expected, I would say. Venus, you know, Venus more so. She was more surprising. Because it seems like she's had time to deal with some of these lingering injuries, which is great news. Serena looks very fit. She lost to Shelby Rogers in the next round. Shelby Rogers, you know, coming off this huge win. John Wertheim notes today that she loses to Verizona Reva in Cincinnati qualifying. And like, this is the cruelty of tennis, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can beat the GOAT in one week and then lose in qualifying. I also want to mention that if, like me, you are concerned about the state of Venus Williams' game based on what you'd seen over the last two years, frankly, and now being a newly minted 40-year-old, this tournament just allayed all all those concerns because the, the fatigued, the lumbering Venus Williams that we'd seen over the last couple of years was nowhere to be seen in Kentucky. Sure, perhaps her game wasn't as crisp as it could have been, but she played two and a half hours against her sister, and she was eager and rearing to go at every point, every stretch of that match. She did not look fatigued for one second, which is incredible mm -hmm. in that heat. On the other side of the draw, Jennifer Brady is absolutely demolishing people, (laughs) right? While the news media is fully focused on the Williams little section of that draw, Jennifer Brady is just killing everybody in straight sets. Deploying an impregnable serve the entire week. Winning over 90% of her service games. Yes. Never losing more than four games in any set. Beating Boskova in the quarterfinals with the loss of three games, which that wouldn't really surprise me. Coco Goff, who had some big wins this week, beating her two and four. Coco was such a wild card. Her head is just screwed on right. She knows how to win tennis matches that she probably shouldn't win. But Brady was, I mean, damn near perfect this week. I tuned in to watch this massive forehand, and what I got was this incredible defense on top of that huge forehand. And reliable, penetrative serve. Mm -hmm. She's got a lot of weapons, and at 25 years old... She's building off of her start to the year and seems to be putting it all together. Her first WTA title had previously made the semifinals in Nottingham and Dubai. Nottingham coming last year and then Dubai this year. 
She has beaten a number one player before in Ash Barty. She's also scored wins over Muguruza, Svetlina, Vondrosova, and Kokogov at this tournament. Right. So she was building this great momentum in the beginning of the year, has clearly continued it. And I would say she's one of the more low-key players in the top 40, 50 or so. This is her first WTA title. It was her first final as well. And she's just sort of building up uh, slowly but surely. You know, at 25, even though tennis skews a bit older now, she is still kind of a late bloomer. She went to college. She was part of a, a national championship team at UCLA. And she's really starting to come into her own now. And she's just very work person-like. Uh, she just gets down to business and does it. Her opponent in the final, Jill Teichmann, a Swiss player, a lefty, is probably one of the most anonymous yet successful players in the WTA Top 60. Mm -hmm. She is somebody who won two tournaments last year. This is the third time that they played, having split matches previously. And she had a great tournament herself, mowing down the field to the final right. before Jen Brady stepped in. And reaching the doubles final. All right, now we're off to the bubble. I feel like you expected a, a more... <laughs> Uh, effusive response from me dun, when dun, you said dun. that, and uh, I got nothing. The Cincinnati-New York City bubble has begun. Players started flying in from all over the place, getting tested. It's so strange. Isolating because after their test. Cincinnati was announced as being part of this tandem bubble, right? And then the Kentucky tournament was announced after that. And if you know anything about the geography of America, you know that the Cincinnati tournament is like 30 minutes from Kentucky, mm -hmm. crossing into into Kentucky. And so why are we having Kentucky, but we couldn't have Cincinnati in Cincinnati? Well, it was really just timing. And Lexi kind of, Lexington is about like two hours from yeah. Cincinnati. It was more of a rhetorical question and oh, more okay. to, to highlight just how kind of on the fly and haphazard this tennis planning has had to be in the face of this pandemic. Right. Now, lest you think we're letting them off the hook completely, that is not the case. No. We'll get to that. Bubbles can be burst. Right. And, uh, you know, some some players have been skeptical of this so-called bubble because it is not actually a bubble. <laughs> you, you left a lot of room there for interrogation one way or the other. It's not a debate. It's not a bubble. Okay. Yeah. But it, it does seem that Stacey Allister and the gang have tried to create some pretty rigorous health and safety protocols as much as is possible. It's not a surprise that things are pretty well organized with Stacey Allister at the helm. This is going to be uh, an incredible test of her leadership in her first year in the role. But the thing is, there are still immense risks, no matter how many precautions we take. Right? Mm -hmm. Th this is unpredictable. It's highly infectious. Things can happen, no matter how many precautions you put in place you're also dealing with the players and their pushback in making things as amenable for them <laughs> as possible uh -huh. okay so here is the problem these precautions rely on human beings to trust each other and also to to take responsibility for each other's safety to have each other's best interest at heart mm -hmm. not just themselves and their own comfort so ahead of the bubble, this is still a few weeks out from U.S. Open, Christopher Clary and other journalists tweet about this secret Zoom call where the ATP Top 20 consider, supposedly, they considered boycotting the U.S. Open if certain demands were not met. And one of those 
was the requirement to quarantine when you return to Europe after playing in New York. This was confusing to me because this is a European Union thing, this is not a USTA rule, and it was disappointing because they were, it appeared, based on what we were told, they were trying to pick away at safety protocols that were put in there for good reason. Mm -hmm. This is where it doesn't, the whole continuum of tennis play is not a bubble, right? You may... You may try and analyze New York by itself and say, well, the New York setup is a close approximation of a bubble. But what does that really mean if the the travel and the events beforehand and afterward aren't continuations of that bubble? Right. Because if you go far in New York, you don't have much time to get to Europe and then quarantine. There is no quarantine. Like, what's the point of quarantining for three days if you're not going to do the entire mm. incubation period? And then folks want to point to, I was tested upon arrival, and then I got my test results in 24 hours and I was negative, so I'm good to go. <laughs> but we know that that's right. not how it works. Yeah. So a lot of it is smoke and mirrors. I mean, how far deep down the COVID rabbit hole you have to do in adhering to precautions to be certain or close to certain is not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Which is why we've been in the house damn near every day since March. <laughs> you know, this started with Palermo, with Simona Halep saying, you know what, I'm good love, enjoy. After the tournament was like, no, 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 it's fine. You don't have to quarantine. You just come on over and then go back. <laughs> and she was like, you know what, that's cool, but I'm going to pass. And so you see that the responses and, and a lot of times the demands of these players is to loosen safety protocols to make us more comfortable. It's so a we push will and show pull up. on both ends. It is. It's not just the players yeah. agitating for it. It's the tournaments acquiescing. Right. So in Palermo, you saw a tournament sort of trying to bend the rules. In New York, you saw the ATP agitating for it. And you see subsequently that the Rome tournament has been like, come on over. You don't got a quarantine. Right. We talked to the premier of Italy and we're good. You know, after these Zoom calls, Novak Djokovic announced that after much consternation and philosophizing and purifying, he's decided to play the U.S. Open. Ointments and oils and feelings and trees. <laughs> Greens, beans, potatoes, tomatoes. So Djokovic is playing, you know, Federer and Zoll are not. Everybody's in the bubble now. If you're not in the bubble, you're not playing. Kane Shikori announced that he tested positive for COVID. He announced again today that he was tested again and is still positive. But the crazy thing is that he is still entertaining the possibility of playing if he tests negative with enough time before the tournament starts, which to me is absolutely wild. It is, is crazy. He'd be traveling from within the United States, right. which is one less problematic hurdle mm -hmm. but forget the contagion aspect even if you're exhibiting mild symptoms which he he said he's not asymptomatic but he's experiencing a mild case we know that there are lingering side effects for people who even have mild cases and of course that's not every case but i would if it were me i would be really apprehensive to exert myself at that physical level after recovering from this disease with very little time. What what kind of condition are you in? Luckily, you are not a professional tennis player. Right, but like what kind of condition is he in to be playing? Yeah, I just, I say that because I don't want to 
totally downplay the decision making that these athletes are having to to go through. Right. You're it's, right. it's easy for us to sit here on our pod box or soapbox <laughs> or high yeah. horses and say, you should not be doing this, you should not be doing this. But perhaps there is some utility in waiting and seeing. Mm. I mean he could still withdraw. Maybe yeah. it's too early to pass judgment in that regard. And, and this is this is us accepting that against or better judgment of what we think should happen, whether tennis should be played or not at all, it is happening. So it's about <laughs> getting through this process now and looking at it from a perspective of what are the best practices, what are the best decisions, what are the ways to make the best of this situation, given that it is happening. Mm-hmm. There's nothing we can do about it at this point. And the thing is, we don't know what the best practices are, right? We have to defer to people who are actual experts to tell us what the best practices are. So for that reason, and because of fatigue, I have sort of retired from policing. You have? Yeah, just because I'm tired of it. It's boring. For how many months can you say, well, this person's doing this wrong and this wrong and this wrong? What What can we do? Like, <laughs> I too was going to say something similar in this episode, mm. and we had not talked about that privately right. together before. Right. So I'm, I am surprised and not that we shared that same sentiment. I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise. Right? Like, who, who has the energy anymore to condemn, to be Babylonian about it? That said, there could still be some juicy moments that I will enjoy with all these unofficial officers monitoring movements oh, yeah. in the bubble. Like, that That could bring some juicy details, especially if we have some repeat offenders <laughs> from yes. earlier in quarantine. So... We should say, like, we're clearly not experts in the science. However, I think it's fair for anyone to comment about what players say and and how they sort of take responsibility or fail to take responsibility for things that they've done. You don't have to be an expert to, to comment on that. Wow, you are just setting up this Novak Djokovic piece later on. You're <laughs> right, planting right. the seeds. So let's let's try to get some organization here to this episode. Players have convened at a site about 35 kilometers away from the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. For those of you who use miles, I don't know what that is. That, you know, it's like, like, it's like 20 miles. It's like a half hour away, okay? Um, so there, with traffic, I'm told, about an hour. Oh, it's Long Island, so there's some traffic. Some players are showing us videos, pictures of their drab carpets, their terrible views, their mm. shoddy curtains what normal people would see as actually like a fairly nice hotel. Uh, They're in Uniondale. Some of them are in Uniondale at a hotel right near Hofstra University. Stacey Allister made the unfortunate slip of calling this the Manhattan Project. We will bring... You can't go to Manhattan, but we will bring Manhattan to you. Uh, I don't know if you know what the Manhattan Project is. So tell us if if (laughs) folks don't know. It's just extremely darkly funny, right? The Manhattan Project was the secret project in the United States that brought together scientists from all over the place to develop a nuclear weapon that was subsequently used on Japan. Hmm. So it is a, it's not the best metaphor. It gave me the darkest chuckle that I've had all week. Well, the U.S. Open is gathering all these players in New York to develop potentially a cluster of covid to then unleash on the rest of Europe once the tournament's over. So, uh, This is gallows humor if I've ever seen it. 
that is actually why this episode is called The Long Island Project, because that would have been a much better title. Do you notice how I feel the U.S. Open and folks who talk about the U.S. Open try to steer as far away as possible from acknowledging the Long Islandness of it? <laughs> like, it's always New York, Manhattan, it's so glamorous, it's so this... But, you, you know, that just lean in to know, the right? Long Island. Like, technically, Queens itself is on Long Island. Just deal with it. They've tested everybody, about 1,400 people in the Cincinnati bubble. There was one positive test, which I actually think was not bad. One out of 1,400? Not bad. It turned out, uh, according to Sebastián Toroc of La Nación from Argentina, it was... Juan Manuel Galvan, who is the physio of Guido Pela, and because of close and prolonged contact, Pela, Hugo Delien, and Pela's coach, Jose Acasuso, were all removed from Cincinnati. They must isolate for... There's varying reports about this. Um, I've read 12 days, I've read 10 days, but they have to isolate because they were in close contact with the person who tested positive. As far as how the actual on-site stuff is working, we've seen a lot of videos with players in these corporate suites. It appears that the top 32 seeds on both sides of the draw have been granted, gifted, bestowed upon these luxurious suites that they can they can stay in while on-site. They're not actually living out of those suites, but you see videos of players waving to each other, hitting balls to each other across... The court, Naomi Osaka's suite is apparently besides Stefano Tsitsipas's suite. It's made for, for some, entertaining content. I have not enjoyed any of it. <laughs> so it hasn't been entertaining to you. Correct. Okay, right. Switching gears for a minute, Christopher Clary secured this Zoom scoop with Novak Djokovic. A Zoom scoop riot? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that dates us a lot. Um... So the New York Times posted uh, an interview with Novak Djokovic, with which Clary conducted over Zoom. Novak is here. You know, he was asked about everything. He was asked about his position on vaccines, about his decision to come to the U.S. Open, about what he did during quarantine. And, of course, this made the rounds on tennis Twitter. But if you expected Novak to come to Long Island after all the missteps of the spring and summer with words that would kind of make up for some of it in some way, you would have been disappointed. (laughs) I quote, I see that the international media has taken that out of context a little bit, saying that I'm completely against vaccines of any kind. My issue here with vaccines is if someone is forcing me to put something in my body that I don't want, for me that's unacceptable. I'm not against vaccination of any kind, Because who am I to speak about vaccines when there are people that have been in the field of medicine and saving lives around the world? Indeed. Exactly. Indeed. It's, it's, you've got it there. You've got it. I'm sure that there are vaccines that have little side effects that have helped people and helped stop the spread of some infections around the world. Well, yes, there, there have been. Indeed. Polio. Some incredibly destructive diseases have been eradicated from the planet. Imagine that. Uh, (laughs) And I can guarantee that he has all those vaccines. I will. I should say, I want to remind you that we were not part of the international media that claimed he was against all vaccines. Correct. We said at the time 
that this is translated. It is unclear if he means he is skeptical of this hypothetical vaccine or all vaccines. That well, was not clear. But we also said, and we were clear about this point, that him offering those words, even if prompted, did nothing to help anybody. Well, right. I'm talking about a vaccine that literally does not exist. He goes on to say, how are we expecting that to solve our problem when this coronavirus is mutating regularly from what I understand? So here's my problem with this. I'm going to switch gears from Novak and I'm going to take aim at the journalist and the editor that allowed that to sit there because I expect more from journalism. Who is the journalist? Clary. Okay. And whoever edited the piece and let it go to print at the New York Times, I expect more from journalism when someone says... I think the virus is mutating and vaccines will not be effective. I expect a journalist to look at, I don't know, Google, TikTok. <laughs> Listen, there are some the doctors news. on TikTok right. who are giving us the information right. that we need. But, but in all seriousness, I expect a reporter to follow that quote up with, well, you're correct that the virus has mutated once or twice. However... The vaccines that are currently in production are expected to be effective against the mutations for these reasons. This and literally, the... I learned that from watching a TikTok of a scientist researching vaccines. Like This is not the first time a vaccine has been developed. You'd think so, based on the way vaccines are talked about. The history of vaccines has been, by and large, a percentage so highly effective that leaving room for this kind of doubt and skepticism is just so wildly irresponsible. Right. Your thoughts are not expertise. There's no space for your thoughts to undercut the taking of a vaccine in the public discourse. There just isn't. No, but please understand at this moment, I'm criticizing the writer and the publication that let that quote sit there, right? Like, this is not a press release. This is not a succession of quotes from somebody. This is a story, and when when you print the quote that is patently false, you should provide context. I'm saying that's, this is that's a, the job. This is a double-headed sure. attack sure. here. This, you're you're yeah. going at one thing, I'm going at the other, and okay. they're both messed up. So moving on, you know, there's a lot of quotes here. No, this is the kicker. This is the real <laughs> good stuff. Novak was asked about the Adria tour, of course. He said. I don't think I've done anything bad, to be honest. I do feel sorry for people that were infected. Do I feel guilty for anybody that was infected from that point onward in Serbia, Croatia, and the region? Of course not. It's like a witch hunt, to be honest. How can you blame one individual for everything? And so I think he, he probably meant, do I feel guilty for everybody who was infected in the region from, from that point onward? Which I think changes the meaning of the quote quite a bit. I'm, I'm giving him uh, a little bit of generosity there. Yeah, but then uh, you say witch hunt. Like, this right. is the language of a certain sect of folks. <sighs> like, <sighs> why are you invoking that term, first of all? When Grigor Dimitrov came back to the media spotlight after his bout with coronavirus, he expressed, whether or not it was sincere, he expressed regret and guilt for people that he may have been responsible for infecting, mm -hmm. right? He said he couldn't live with the idea that he could have hurt other people. 
This is the opposite of that. This we is will like, literally give you the template. <laughs> right. And again, like you can not believe Grigor when he says that. That's your prerogative. This is quite the opposite of that. And I just, I have trouble understanding this approach. I understand that Novak may feel that he's always been on the back foot with the media. And certainly there's a group of his fans who feel that he is consistently persecuted. That's what this quote tells me, mm-hmm. right? That but, What this quote tells me is that he also believes that. Yeah, but he's also conflating media with fans. Right. And people who aren't fans of him. And a lot of this is coming from regular tennis fans who are not having it. To, to say that all of this pushback is like led by journalists, again, that's out of the Trumpian playbook. Like, it's an attack on media. Like, folks out here are not being brainwashed to be anti-Novak Djokovic. It's it, it's wild to me that you that he would take this approach coming into this, this mm-hmm. swing. Uh, I, and honestly, I will even give you the fact that there has been an anti-Djokovic bias, especially among some, some members of the UK press. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we've seen some alarming sort of anti-eastern language being used over the years repeatedly and so I, I like i think there's some merit to that but i also think that you need to hold people responsible for the things that they say and what they do novak doesn't really seem to take any responsibility for the tour he feels that he's been persecuted that this is a witch hunt even if the Adria tour and the organizing of it you want to to take that weight of responsibility from him, he was still at the very least the face of it. If I am the face of something right. like that and this happens, I'm like, pardon the expression, I'm shitting myself out <laughs> of, like, horror. Right. I'd be horrified. It's just, it's surprising to me. Like, even if you don't believe you have any responsibility, why wouldn't you just lie? Like, why wouldn't you pretend like we all have to do in everyday life and feign humility? And say, you know what? Maybe I fucked up there. Hmm. Well, we've lost the last three Djokovic <laughs> listeners that we had. And so we shall move on. We were going to have this little segment later on, but it dovetails with what we just talked about. I have here entitled Dingbat O the Day. Mm-hmm. And if there are any Mariah Whitney fans out there who can guess the origins of that segment title... Let wow, me know. That is a deep cut. It's a deep cut. Let me know. But in this segment, we're going to talk about some of the figures in <laughs> tennis who have been just day after day in the last week trying to one up each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been an avalanche of assholery. And it's like nobody asked. No. Like, n- <laughs> it's like Google, should I say something like this if I am a tennis player? It might be smart to ask around. Um, can that is the sort of big brother bullshit that we're living in. That was not I'm planned. keeping that in the record. That was not planned. Uh, my phone is right here and it's an Android, and Miss Google here had a very good response. Mm-hmm. And Alexa's over there just breathe. I swear she's breathing. I can hear her breathing. <laughs> like, she's listening. She's judging. She's judging my singing voice because I sing all day. Listen... These were unforced error after unforced error and unbrand for some of these folks. Pat Cash, have you ever thought of him as a reasoned fellow? No. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pat Cash tweeted, 
interesting stat I was told today. In the U.S., 480,000 annually deaths from smoking. COVID deaths on target for 200,000 plus. Hmm. With a hmm. Hmm. Pensive emoji. I'm, I'm doing it right now. You can't see it. Pat, what the fuck is interesting about that? It makes no sense. <laughs> I, it, I, nothing about it makes any sense. So 480,000 people die from smoking-related illnesses. Correct. In the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. So are we then expecting 200,000 people to die every year from COVID like, into infinity? In perpetuity? And just accept it? The I tweeted that the hmm is doing a lot of heavy lifting here because he... <laughs> Because it is. There's no point of the tweet, right? He's presented two facts, has not connected them, has not made any sort of argument why they're related, except for a hmm and an emoji. Fine. I hold myself to a higher tweeting standard, just saying. <laughs> also, is uh, is smoking contagious? Is that something that we've we've learned recently? Mm, no. I mean, it is cool. I will say that. Wow, that is a that is um, yes. This is that's a, a statement. This is an R-rated podcast. I know that's not allowed in Hollywood movies anymore. <laughs> but when you see Betty Davis smoking, that shit is cool, and it's the thing they don't teach you in school. The, this <laughs> this is beside the point. For the, for the young, point is for other young virile <laughs> American boys, it was the Marlboro Man on the horse that was cool. <laughs> but for you. It was Miss Betty Davis. Yes, yes, yes. Right after she had just finished feuding with Miss Joan Crawford. Right. Like, I don't actually smoke. I don't like smoking, but it actually does look very cool. Anyway, I'm not really sure what Pat Cash was trying to say here. Smoking has been highly regulated by the government. The annual deaths from smoking have gone down significantly. Fewer people buy cigarettes now. There's warnings. The price has increased. Like, I don't I don't get it. Uh, the same thing with auto accidents. Seatbelts are mandated. Auto accidents are a huge killer of people in the U.S., but this stuff is regulated. Like, there are traffic laws. We have to take steps to prevent them by law. I don't really understand the, the comparison with COVID here. I think we need to move on from this okay. because it, okay. it's taken too much of our bandwidth. Right. So Annabelle, that, he, he was our first dingbat, hmm. second dingbat. Annabelle Croft has joined forces with Pat Cash. She's been sharing this Plandemic documentary, which, you know, tennis, man, tennis is infected because Sinclair Broadcasting Company, which owns Tennis Channel, is the one that produced this awful fake documentary... <laughs> Uh, that accuses government officials of some really whack things. And imagine how bad it is that public pressure actually got Sinclair to not run that Mm -hmm. piece in the United States. Imagine. But Annabelle Croft, who is a tennis commentator, has stumbled onto some rando YouTube documentary which casts doubt on everything that... PhD and MD scientists know about virology. I know she's she has found debates. She has found the message. She <laughs> no that is <laughs> that, a glad reference. Is, that is a deep cut. <laughs> no, I do want to talk about this seriously because um, this is horrifying. Clearly, and like we said before, we are not scientists. We're not experts. And when something like this happens, when a shock to a society happens like this, 
people act out their anxiety in different ways, right? Like some people's reaction is to latch on to totally outlandish theories that are extremely complicated and require cooperation on a level that we know <laughs> our government is not capable of mm-hmm. to, to build these conspiracy theories. So I understand that believing conspiracy theories is a coping mechanism for some people that doesn't make it okay no also as my boss pointed out to me he said these folks have all these conspiracy theories and fine you believe in a conspiracy but what's the theory well right like what's the driving force behind it and the thing is like the truth is rarely that interesting no and it's not like a child's sex ring out of a pizza parlor right and conspiracy theories theories require uh, an incredible level of competence from a lot of different people at the same time, which, if you've worked in any organization, you know is not possible. And we know the people on both sides of the pond currently in positions of power do not possess the intellectual acumen to carry out these kinds of conspiracies. Mm-hmm. So where this gets dark-sided is when people who have no expertise, like Pat Cash and Annabelle Croft, question people who have spent many, many years, many more years than we have in school, studying the way that viruses work and trying to keep the international populace safe from the spreading of viruses. What for? What is the purpose? And from what perch are you spreading these ridiculous theories? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to make the world better or not? Imagine being a virologist, a scientist, a scholar who's made all your research and works public only to then be challenged publicly on Twitter by one Annabelle Croft to a debate. A debate? A debate. For what? Who would be... This is how (laughs) we legitimize illegitimate discourse right and i know that's very common in american culture this distrust for expertise i didn't know that that was the same case in the united kingdom perhaps i'm wrong there but why am i going to believe somebody who read some shit off facebook versus a doctor who has spent his or her life studying these things i don't really understand what those folks are trying to accomplish are they driven by contrarianism i yeah like are they driven by compassion for other people no if they are they're doing it wrong all right back to tennis back to the u.s open no no there's one more person one more person who um she uh is hyphenated in her surname Um, she goes by an acronym meredith baxter bernie she has been very prominent during quarantine and it seems as though Justine Arden. her work on Tennis United uh, oh. lets her believe that it uh, should be parlayed. No, she's not an anti-vaxxer. No, no, this is separate, but we're talking about the dingbats all the day. Oh, you're talking about Bethany Maddox. Yeah, that perhaps she thinks her prominence during the quarantine should then be parlayed into a U.S. Open wildcard. It's been a lot of pick me, pick me in the last few months, in the last week especially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, You're really trying to get me in trouble, she so had a, I think she we should a, move on. No, but listen, she had a rough spot. She had a rough dare, so when it was pointed out on Twitter that her husband is a big Trump supporter, has the Trump website in his profile, 
you can find any number of tweets on his profile about building the wall. And so there was silence, of course, uh, when that happened. Why would you acknowledge that? Just like, why would you acknowledge the Tennis United episode about race in tennis? Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, Miss uh, BMS has had uh, a week of wiling out on Twitter, campaigning for various U.S. Open involvements, Mm -hmm. be it the wild card that still has not come her way, despite 500 people withdrawing from the tournament. And also, in response to Darren Cahill, who expressed excitement about getting back to work with his ESPN colleagues and failed to mention BMS's name, and she playfully, pick-meedly, called him out on it on Twitter. I'm just saying it's been uh, a cavalry of bad looks. Okay. So you you spoke about the hyperbolic 5,000 or whatever people who pulled out of the U.S. Open. Let's talk about the U.S. Open draw for a second. The women who have pulled out among the top 10 are number one, Ashley Barty, number two, Simona Halep, Svitolina, defending champion Andreescu, Bertens, and Bencic. So our top four seeds are Pliskova, Kenin, Serena, and Naomi Osaka. We've also seen withdrawals from Wang Chong, Svelana Kuznetsova, Fiona Farrow, Sue She, Streetsova, and, and the list goes on. We're all the way into the 140s right now for direct entries. And, you know, I have no idea if, if withdrawals are going to slow down because the bubble has started or whatever, but... This is where we're at. Like, this is pandemic tennis. People are going to pull out. We talked uh, a few episodes ago about this kind of informal separate tour thing, as if there were, you know, a golf U.S. tour and European tour. And in this moment, because these tournaments are so close together across continents, it seems like a lot of players have made that decision Mm -hmm. to, to play either European tournaments or North American tournaments. I'm also, for the record, past the point of placing judgment on a player who is trying to participate in both. Sure. Because at the end of the day, if they're making a good faith effort, again, probably very difficult to define, but if they're making that effort to do this as safely as possible as per the protocols, how can you begrudge somebody who is not a multimillionaire from trying to cash in from that at least 150,000 US dollars first round prize money for both the US Open and French Open. Right. I struggle to to admonish somebody for that for at least trying or wanting to. Especially if you're ranked 140 and you've received direct entry to both tournaments and the rest of your job for the year has been canceled, right? Your income disappeared. I can't blame you for for trying to enter both. And for the rest of the year, please keep me honest because I I don't really want to comment on anybody's form or lack thereof. Like of course we'll talk about it, but where how are we to criticize somebody's form in a year like this? Yeah. You know. Uh, Courtney Nguyen had a a good point on Twitter, I thought, regarding the players who have excelled so far coming out of quarantine and it seems that the introvert has been able to acclimate to these conditions better than maybe some of the the more flamboyant players the more engaging players or or you know extroverts who might suffer acutely from not being able to be around people 
On the men's side, we know that Nadal and Federer are out. Monfils is out. He's the number nine player. Fognini is is running out of continents at the moment, but he has pulled out of the U.S. <laughs> Open. Because he won't play in all of Asia. No, he's, he's the only player that I will poke fun at for that because he's boycotting Asia in general. He will play anywhere in Asia. But Warinka To be out. clear, he has two young children at home. He just had another child. It makes perfect sense if this is the reason why <laughs> right, right, right. he's not going that that he wouldn't. It, yeah. It's perfectly sensible. Uh, Nikirios, which was news because of who he is, and most of the French guys have pulled out. Federer had his surgery. Nadal is wrapped up in a yacht scandal. <laughs> it's not a scandal. <laughs> Do you want to know? How the rankings are working? I know you've been waiting with bated breath. I suspect the listeners will want to know more than I. Sure. And you know that I, I'm i interested in bullshit like this. Right? Once you latch on to something that has a lot of details and information, you are unstoppable. Yes, yes. So, the ATP and WTA announced how the rankings are going to function for the remainder of 2020. The ATP said no player will have fewer points than he has now. In the Frozen ranking. So they can improve on their points throughout the rest of this year if their results count in uh, in what's referred as the best 18 between the 2019 season and the 2020 season. Mm-hmm. For example, a player gets to keep their 2019 Roland Garros points regardless. Mm-hmm. If they were semifinalists last year and they reached the finals this year, the semifinal points will lop off and they'll have the finals points. Right. Essentially, they're adding the difference between that one round. So if you play the same event in two consecutive years, your best result will count. So if you made the semis last year and then you only make the fourth round, you're going to keep the semis points. Mm -hmm. A player can't count the same event in both years, though. So if you have great results at Roland Garros in two consecutive years, for example, you can't keep them both. You can only keep your, your better result. And when the tour resumes in 2021, the events from this year will remain for 52 weeks or until the event is played again. Which, that seems like a a Roland Garros rule. Right. And Rome. Any -hmm. of the clay events are going to happen post-US Open because the French Open happened last May. Mm. It's going to happen this September. And then it's going to happen again next May if everything is on track. Right. Per- perhaps it will happen next May 2021. If it does, your points from the current year's Rolling Girls will disappear. So the ATP is working off this best 18 concept. The WTA is the best 16. So between March 2019 and December 2020, they will count your best 16 results. And otherwise, it's functioning along the same rules as the ATP rules we just explained. That's it? That's it. Wow. It's the, that easy. The brevity. I'm, <laughs> I'm amazed. We're going to finish this episode with two mini tributes to two figures in tennis who passed away recently. The first being Bob Ryland and then Angela Buxton. Bob Ryland died this month at 100 years old. And he's known in the U.S. for being the first African-American player to play tennis professionally. In 1959, he played the World Pro Championships, 
which was part of Jack Kramer's professional tour. And at that point, he was already 39 years old. So when I learned something like that, you, you think about the life that that person lived before they were 39 years old. It makes you want to fill in that gap to find out where and what was that gap. Right. Mr. Ryland played college tennis at both Xavier University and Wayne State in Detroit. His tenures at those schools were interrupted by World War II. He did become the first black tennis player in the U.S. to compete in the NCAA championships, got a degree from Wayne State. He played the American Tennis Association circuit, which you may know from previous episodes of our show was an alternate organization and tour that's set up for black American tennis players because the USTA was discriminatory through half of the 20th century. Mr. Ryland won singles titles on the ATA tour in 1955 and 1956. Those were national titles. And finally, you know, in the late 50s, he played some of the amateur majors. He played professionally on Jack Kramer's tour. And really for the bulk of his life, he was a professional coach. He taught he taught the Kennedys, the Kennedy family in Washington, D.C. in the early 1960s. He taught Harold Solomon, Leslie Allen, Arthur Ashe. During his 27 years at the Midtown Tennis Club in New York City, he taught Barbara Streisand, Tony Bennett, Eartha Kitt. Even Richard Williams brought Bob Ryland to L.A., in the early 90s to uh, to help coach his girls, Venus and Serena. Mr. Ryland continued to volunteer at the Frederick Johnson Playground every Saturday in Harlem, New York. You know, as we've seen with previous titans of Black America in athletics, so much of this story went untold for a long, long time. And so much of their achievements happened outside of mainstream professional circuits. Right. Bob Ryland had to make his way on the ATA and did not have the same opportunities that his compatriots did, his white compatriots mm. did. Unfortunately for him, by the time tennis becomes professional, he is too old to fully enjoy the fruits of that. Right. So we we are stuck with these firsts. Like the first black player to play professionally was in 1959. Really? And with many African-American athletes in all sports, you see this contribution to community that is greater than what can be expected, uh, especially of, of white athletes. You know, so volunteering your time and, and committing your, your life to making things easier for the people who come after you. So that's the legacy that people like he and Zena Garrison, for example, leave behind. And that's a narrative that we affix to them after the fact. Mm-hmm. Because we don't, who is to say that they that was their life's mission in the moment? Exactly. A lot of it was trying to survive and do the best that they can for themselves mm-hmm. amidst all this strife. Somebody else who had a similar experience to Bob Ryland in not being able to to have as full or fully formed professional career was Althea Gibson. She was somebody who was relegated to the ATA for a while until she was permitted to to play at the USLTA in the early 50s. A couple of well-trod-over stories of Althea Gibson's career and life 
feature allyship from white women. In 1950, Alice Marble was the one who was instrumental in getting the USLTA to admit Althea to its tournament. And then at the end of her life, Angela Buxton, who died this past week, was instrumental in getting financial aid to Althea at the end of her life as her medical expenses ballooned and as she fell out of the public's consciousness, really. People forgot about Althea Gibson. And Angela Buxton was here to help remind folks that this was somebody who made incredible contributions to American society, to the advancement of Black people in America. And this is something that we need to do, to do right by her in her time of need. Buxton herself, she was born in 1935 in Liverpool. Kevin Mitchell in The Guardian refers to her as, quote, Buxton the Difficult and, quote, an unexploded hand grenade. She spent much of her youth in South Africa. And you can see how a young Jewish girl who grew up in Liverpool during the Blitz, a working class city, had developed an incredible toughness. She's probably most famous for her friendship with Althea Gibson. They played doubles together at Wimbledon, winning the 1956 Roland Garros and Wimbledon titles. They were two outsiders who parted together. They went to dinner and nightclubs, causing, quote, harmless trouble. (laughs) Which I enjoyed because you so frequently hear about Althea as a pioneer, as this very serious figure. And Kevin Mitchell, in this wonderful article in The Guardian, shows Althea and Angela as these two young women who were just out to have some fun, have a few drinks hang out in a few Paris nightclubs, and just chill. Unfortunately for a lot of black women, you need that white person with you to be able to have those moments at that time. Sadly, Buxton was never given lifetime membership at Wimbledon, despite continued attempts over the course of 60 years, which she blamed on anti-Semitism. This is a Wimbledon doubles champion. She was inducted into both the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame and the Black Tennis Hall of Fame. Really, because of her both her friendship with Althea Gibson and also her rallying to raise money for Ms. Gibson at the end of her life. Rest in peace to both Bob Ryland and Angela Buxton, two lives well-lived, two people who made such great, important contributions to tennis. And you know what? More, One more rest in peace to Chi-Chi Devane yes. from RuPaul's Drag Race Season 8 and all-stars, just one of the sweetest, kindest presences we've ever seen on Drag Race. Chi-Chi was 34 years old, suffered from scleroderma, was admitted recently to the hospital with pneumonia, and sadly passed away. Just one of my favorite queens, an, an absolute light on the show. It was impossible to dislike her. That Bayou accent, I mean, it's just, it's awful. And you can see the the incredible heartache from her peers on Drag Race that, that she was very well loved. So I just want to remember Xavion today. Xavion Davenport. On that somber note, thank you for listening to episode 203. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are the Body Serve on both Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Till next time.
Thank you very much. Thank you.